This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today we have the CBS News of the World from the morning of October 9th, 1942. It includes updates on the war from New York, Stockholm, Moscow, London, and Washington. The World War II radio podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. CBS World News brings you the early morning reports of its correspondents at home and abroad. Here are the highlights of the biggest news received up to 8 a.m. Eastern Wartime, Friday, October 9th. Germans attack with tank columns south of Stalingrad. American and British planes are over France in one of the war's great daylight raids. American planes take toll of Jap shipping in Pacific. Jap shells miss Wendell Wilkie on Chinese front. Now here is Jay Sims and the news. Before calling in Stockholm, here are the latest reports from the New Guinea front. Allied bombers have carried out new raids against Japanese bases and shipping in the New Guinea sector. General MacArthur's war bulletin says that Allied planes attacked two enemy ships in the seas southwest of New Guinea. But murky weather hid the results. And at Kopang, on Japanese-held Dutch Timor Island, our reconnaissance planes bombed an enemy ship. Also, Allied medium bombers attacked Jap transports near the Tanimbar Islands of the Sanda Sea. On New Guinea itself, our medium bombers harassed retreating Japanese forces. Our flyers bombed and strafed the enemy positions at Kokoda on the northern slope of the Orne Stanley Mountains. The Japs' base at Buna was also bombed. Buna is on the northeast shore of the island, opposite the Allied base at Port Moresby. General MacArthur's communique reports no material change in the landing fighting in New Guinea. And now let's hear from Columbia's correspondents in important world centers. First, we hear from the Swedish capital. We take you to CBS Stockholm, Bernard Valerie reporting. Claim that after provoking the present tension, over the trivial incident of the exchange of telegrams between Herr Hitler and King Christian, the Germans did not even bother to present formal demands. Other excellent observers say that some demands were presented, but it is quite certain that at this moment, only one man in the whole of Stockholm knows what these demands were. He is the Danish envoy here, Herr Kruis, who came from Copenhagen to Stockholm this morning. Up to now, he has not even had time to see the Swedish foreign minister. A few points can be stated with a great deal of assurance. Whether demands have been presented or whether the Danish government was only made aware of the nature of German claims, the Danes are not going to accept anything in violation of their constitution, or especially such as would be likely to bring about an armed clash between the Danes and the United Nations. I also feel fairly sure that the Germans are aware of this Danish determination, and thus the entire Danish crisis boils down to this. Do the Germans want to provoke a showdown? 
and assume the administration of an irreconcilably hostile country. This would mean that thousands of German civil servants and Gestapo men sorely needed inside the Third Reich would have to be dispatched to Denmark. This would mean administrative, economic, and political chaos on the Norwegian model. It is felt that the Germans have not yet made up their minds. A serious struggle is now going on between different German groups, one preaching that the game would not be worth the candle, and the other insisting on complete occupation of Denmark. The height of the Danish-German crisis actually was reached on September 29, when the German envoy in Copenhagen was urgently recalled to Berlin and the Danish minister in the German capital was proclaimed persona non grata and practically expelled from Berlin. Ten days have passed since then and nothing has happened. Today, a sign of detente can be noted. I learned from a reliable source that since yesterday, the members of the Danish Free Corps, who during the past days have provoked many bloody incidents exploited by Berlin propaganda, have completely disappeared from the streets and have either been consigned to their barracks or sent to the Eastern Front. That was Bernard Valery from Stockholm. And now for news direct from the Russian capital, we take you to CBS Moscow. Larry Lassau reporting. Gallup Telegraph today, the Germans succeeded in moving ahead across two streets of the big tractor factory settlement. This was accomplished by creating a large numerical superiority on this narrow battlefront. The Germans, you see, are trying to break through to the high bank of the Volga, cut the defending Red Army unit in two, and destroy them separately. Northwest of Stalingrad, where the main group of the German army is engaged, the fight is getting fiercer especially for hills and vantage points. But here, the Soviet troops are not merely on the defense, but are carrying out active operations. The Germans thought that the Russians were using a secret weapon over Stalingrad, but it turned out to be an improved type of transport plane used some 15 years ago, the U-2. These are built of plywood and canvas, and with a speed not exceeding more than 60 to 90 miles an hour. The Germans call these mystery bombers the Russian matchboxes, but the Russians call them the flying motorcycles. Used only at night, these low-speed bombers are capable of great bombing accuracy. They venture where German heavy bombers fear to fly. That is, they can bomb one side of a street and not hit their own men on the Soviet-held side. They can pick out a single German-held house in Stalingrad and bomb it whereas a heavy bomber would be forced to regard an entire area as its target at night. These Soviet flying motorcycles, so-called because they sound like a motorcycle going uphill over a bad road, are especially good at chucking bombs into ravines where German troops shelter for the night. We're told that when the Germans caught on to the low speed of these bombers, their anti-aircraft fire improved. But now the Soviet pilots glide over the target with the engines cut off, giving rise to the rumors heard from German prisoners that the Red Army was using gliders to bomb Stalingrad. One of the best features of this new low-speed plane is their ability to land at low speed in full darkness. They need only two small lamps as a flare path, so the German bombers cannot detect their airfields and bomb them. The Russian pilots say that soon they'll be able to land their flying motorcycles by the light of a cigarette. This is Larry Lasser returning you now to Columbia in New York. And that was Moscow. And now across the Atlantic to the British capital, we take you to CBS London, Charles Collingwood reporting.
There has been a great deal of air activity over France this morning. Large numbers, perhaps the largest yet, of United States flying fortresses have been out. They were protected by many squadrons of fighters, including unfamiliar types of American fighters. It sounds like a very big operation. The 10 British commandos who landed on Stark have really started something. Few things have angered the people of Britain so much as Germany's calculated cruelty to prisoners of war. You remember when the Germans brought the wounded British prisoners right down to the water's edge before deciding that they didn't really want to exchange them? Well, this chaining of the Dieppe prisoners has made the British just as bitter. The Canadian soldiers here are particularly sore. This morning, a couple of them went into Madame Tussaud's famous waxworks and tried to smash up the statue of Hitler there. They cocked it around a bit, and one of them was going to put a bullet through the wax head when the attendants grabbed him. As you know, the British War Office has reacted by coldly announcing that an equal number of German prisoners will be chained as of noon tomorrow unless the Germans relent. When I asked a British officer just how the British were going to go about this, he scratched his head and said, Well, old boy, I'm afraid I just don't know. You see, we haven't had much experience in this sort of thing. That, of course, is exactly the truth. At the moment, the British Army is scurrying around trying to borrow enough handcuffs and irons for the German prisoners. The Army doesn't have enough, and they think they'll have to borrow some from the police. It is symbolic that there seems to be no shortage of fetters in Germany. Yesterday's House of Commons debate on India has advanced the situation no farther toward a solution. Both Mr. Amory and Mr. Attlee spoke for the government, and both of them were highly uncompromising. Various members spoke against the government's attitude, but only 17 voted against it. The split in British opinion about India is just as marked as ever. You can see it very clearly in today's press reaction to Mr. Amory's statement yesterday. The Daily Sketch, an organ which some people call reactionary, says, Mr. Amory's speech was clever. It was also something much more valuable. It was fair. But the Daily Herald, on the other hand, says, a smug and disheartening speech from Mr. Amory. There you are. There are people in Britain who think the British government is doing everything it can. There are also people, probably more of them, who feel that the government can do a lot more. But one thing everyone agrees on is that the British motives are all right. The British are genuinely anxious to get India cleared up. They just disagree on how to do it. This is Charles Collingwood in London, returning you to CBS in New York. Next, for the latest developments in our own nation's capital, we take you to CBS Washington, John Purcell reporting. There's more good news from the Solomon Islands area. The Japanese threat to Guadalcanal is still very much alive, but Navy airmen are carrying out punishing attacks against the enemy. Late last night, the Navy issued another communique. This one tells of a raid by carrier-based bombers against enemy ship concentrations in the North Solomons, about 250 miles northwest of our main base at Guadalcanal. Navy bombers operating from a carrier task force caught the Japs napping last Monday. Taking advantage of unfavorable weather, they swooped down on enemy ships off Shortland Island. Earlier, our reconnaissance planes had noted Jap vessels in this area apparently concentrating there in preparation for a full-scale invasion against Guadalcanal. When the smoke had cleared away, five ships had been damaged. Two warships strafed by our low-flying planes, eight Jap planes destroyed, six damaged, 
and an airfield bombed. The attack was carried out without the loss of a man or a plane or damage to any American ship. The Navy reports that this seaplane operation was carried out in coordination with bombers from General MacArthur's command, smashing at other objectives in the Solomons. Here are the results of Monday's raid. One heavy cruiser damaged by heavy bombers, probably 1,000-pounders. One transport damaged by heavy bombs. One seaplane tender damaged by light bombs. And these are probably 500-pounders. Two cargo ships damaged by light bombs. One cruiser and one destroyer strafed in the harbor. The Japs also lost four flying boats, two seaplanes, and two bombers. American planes flew in low and machine-gunned six more enemy planes. In addition, the Jap airfield at Kieta was bombed. Enemy losses in the Solomons now stands at 35 ships sunk or heavily damaged and 248 planes destroyed. There was no further word on the situation in Guadalcanal, and it is presumed that marine patrols are still operating against Jap troops reinforced lately by small landing parties. This is John Purcell in Washington returning you to CBS in New York. In Santiago, the Radical Party has called for Chile to break off relations with the Axis. A resolution was passed at its convention demanding the resignation of Foreign Minister Boris. As you know, Chile and Argentina are the only American republics which maintain diplomatic and economic relations with the Axis. And in Panamaribo, Dutch New Guinea, 24 shipwrecked Brazilian seamen have been landed safely. Their ship was recently sunk by a submarine. And that's the story from South America. In China, Wendell Wilkie, President Roosevelt's special envoy, perhaps missed death by five minutes while touring the Chinese front in the Yellow River sector yesterday. Four Japanese shells exploded near a railway station just before Wilkie's train pulled in. The Jap guns were emplaced on the opposite side of the Yellow River in an area which Wilkie was inspecting under the guidance of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's 27-year-old son, Captain Chiang Wai Kuo. The guns blasted big craters in the earth near the station. Wilkie apparently wasn't disturbed by his narrow escape. He told United Press correspondent George Wang, I'm much pleased by the Japanese salutations. They are exceedingly thoughtful. This is the first word of Wilkie's whereabouts since he left Chongqing for an undisclosed destination Wednesday. And American planes based in India have been active again. Our flyers bombed and destroyed a railroad bridge south of Mogong in Burma last weekend. The raids, which were announced today by the United States Army Air Force in New Delhi, India, also included attacks on Japanese barracks and an airfield in, New, in uh, Yunnan Province, China, as well as on Jap rivercraft in northern Burma. Once again, Colombia's correspondents have reported the latest news direct by transoceanic shortwave radio.